Lord, you are more than enough for every aspect of our lives. Lord, you're more than enough to bring healing to marriages. You're more than enough to transform a life that is so far away from you and draw us into your presence. You're more than enough, Lord, to take Santa Cruz County and turn it right side up. Lord, you're more than enough. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that we serve a limitless God. We thank you, Lord, that you are beyond our comprehension, Lord, and you're greater than we think. And so, Lord, we pray as we go to your word, you just continue to reveal the greatness of who you are to every single one of us. Deepen our faith. Increase our love for you, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13, or actually 14. We're going to pick up halfway through chapter 14 tonight, going verse by verse through the Bible. I want to encourage you to read Titus chapter 1, the second half, and then we'll see how far we're going to get. We may get into chapter 2 as well on Sunday, so be uh, looking at that. Now, just so by way of a fairly quick review, and I really mean it, um, Samuel is really a picture of, you know, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. We see a time of going from the, the judges to a time where now kings were going to be raised up. And we saw the prophet Samuel and how God used him from a young age because his mom dedicated his life to the Lord. A great example for all of us to do the same with our children. But then we saw how transitioning over time that now it's gone from a time of Samuel to the time of Saul. But Saul was only king because the people cried out for a king because they wanted to be just like the world. And we've talked about this repeatedly. God has not called us to be like the world at all. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't need to be more culturally relevant. We need to be more biblically accurate. Amen? Amen. We need to be more on fire for God. And so we've seen a transition to King Saul. and We know that he started out well. You know, they cried out for a king, and they cried out for a king, and they cried out for a king, and we know that the king, they already had a king, their king was God, but they cried out for a king, he gave them exactly what they wanted, and to begin with, he looked really good. He was a good-looking guy, he was charismatic, he even went out and won the first battle and offered sacrifice to the Lord, or had the people gather together to worship the Lord, and do this all in remembrance of God, but sadly it didn't last long. And we saw how King Saul began to be arrogant and prideful. And instead of turning to the Lord, he got to a place where he became, you know, uh, impatient with God. And we know that in the beginning of a couple chapters back, we saw where the enemy was mounting up on the other side. And he saw that the Philistines were mounting up. And he was told to wait until, until Samuel got there before he went out to fight. And instead he grew impatient because his own army was shrinking. Now remember, he sent much of his army home because he was prideful. He went from an army of 330,000 down to 3,000 of his own choosing. And then when they saw the size of the enemy, his own 3,000 guys started shrinking down to where they only had 600 left. And it says they were all shaking, trembling, literally 600 shaking guys. That was his army. And the Philistines had men as far as the eye could see, as as the sand on the seashore, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, overwhelming odds, unless your God is great. You know, guys, the enemy is only great if our God is small. And if our God is great, there is no enemy too great. Well, we do know what happened, though, that he took the place of the high priest, 
the king did, King Saul, and he went and made the sacrifice, which is unlawful, because only the high priest can do it, because the high priest is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so no one else can pay the price, no one else can make the sacrifice. So from that point forward, Samuel shows up right after he makes the sacrifice and tells him, you know what, God's hand is no longer on you. Well, just after that, we saw last week, two weeks ago actually, we saw in the beginning of chapter 14 that there were only two men with swords in their hands. And the two men were Jonathan and King Saul. Jonathan was his son. King Saul, we know, because of his fear that God had ripped the kingdom from him and that you know, he might face that judgment, was hiding under a pomegranate tree and, and with a bunch of guys hanging out with him. And Jonathan went out and said, I know that God can deliver the enemy, whether by many or by few. He can, he can wipe it out completely with one guy. He can do it with no guys, but you know he can do it with one guy. And you know what? That's an encouragement to us that God can turn Santa Cruz right side up if there's just one Christian really to stand up for him in this county. Can God do that? Of course he can. And he can certainly deal with the hundred or so people that are in here tonight. So the point is that we need to learn not to look at the greatness of the enemy, but the greatness of our God and to step out in faith and be obedient to his will and his calling upon our lives. So we saw by many or by few, we talked about you plus God as a majority, and we talked about the fact that our faith is put to the test during those times when we seem overwhelmed or outnumbered. Let me encourage you to get the tape from last time. Again, they're always free, so help yourself, tapes and CDs. Now, we saw a clear contrast between flesh-driven Saul and spirit-driven Jonathan. Saul was a man who saw things from a physical perspective. He was overwhelmed by the enemy, and again... He was one of the guys with a sword, but instead of going out and fighting, he was hiding. Jonathan, seeing things from a spiritual perspective, being led by the Holy Spirit, went out and fought the enemy. He said in 1 Samuel 14, 6, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So God brought a mighty victory through one man who was willing to step out in faith. And if you remember, he not only stepped out in faith, but the way he went about it was amazing to me. Because he, he, you know, he's outnumbered uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to one plus his armor bearer. And you'd think he would at least sneak up with those kind of odds. And right, try. instead he went right out, looked right at him and said, I'm right here. And then when they called him up, he crawled up on his hands and knees. Again, not a good position when you're fighting in a war. Crawling up to the guys standing up there who have all the weapons. you got one sword in your hand and an armor bearer with you. But we know what happened. That even though he didn't know how God would do it, he trusted that God would. Guys, that's, that's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's when we don't know how God's going to do it, but we still trust that he will. He had no idea. How in the world? I got one sword. They got 30,000 chariots. How in the world? I have no chance. But you know what? He didn't say that. He said, I'll just go and be faithful to what God has put in my hand and then let God do great works with it. Guys, you don't have to be Billy Graham to be used by God. You don't have to have thousands of gifts. But take what is in your hand to give God has given you and be faithful with it and watch and see what God will do. And that's exactly what we see with Jonathan. So he stepped out, and we know what happened. As soon as he stepped out, as soon as he got up and began to fight in that small half, first half acre or so of land, and he wiped out 20 of the Philistines, God brought an earthquake, and the Philistines turned on each other and began to kill each other. Now again, God had a great plan in mind, and all he was looking for was someone to step out. So, in a clear attempt to build his own reputation, 
Saul, sitting under a pomegranate tree, hears about this great victory, looks over and sees the Philistines scattering, calls for roll call, says, who's missing? Jonathan's missing. Right about that time, he says, well, let's go down now and get them. Now, again, when we step out in faith, it's amazing how it encourages the faith of others. And that's exactly what happened here. He stepped out in faith, and the faith of others was encouraged. And King Saul, though, really had a motivation in wanting to go get them, not only to wipe out the enemy, but also because he wanted to make sure that nobody forgot who was king. You know, he, he, not even his own son. Did he want even his own son to have any credit whatsoever? So we're going to take a look now a little more at King Saul and just see the contrast in him and how he does things. And as I said last week, you plus God is a majority, but you without God is a disaster. And that's what we're going to see tonight. We saw you plus God as a majority. Jonathan plus God was a majority and great things happened. You without God is a disaster every single time. Who can say amen to that? Amen? You don't have God with you. It's a train wreck waiting to happen. And it is not the prideful and self-serving promotion of my will and my agenda that makes a man or a woman great. It's when we're humble and broken and surrendered before God that makes us useful tools in the hands of our master. So if you're a note taker tonight... I titled the message, The Foolishness of Pride. The Foolishness of Pride. Not thy will, but my will be done. That's contorting scripture, by the way, if you haven't figured that out yet. You know, not thy will, but my will. And the foolishness of pride. Now, we're not to use that word fool lightly, by the way. The Bible says, call no man fool or raka. The Bible tells us not to do that. But the word foolishness... There, I can think of nothing more foolish than pride. Because what is pride? Pride is saying that I am more than I really am. Pride is looking at myself in a way of believing that, you know what, I'm really something significant, and God without me, what would He do? He would be better off, let's face it. Now, here's the truth. Let's take a look at the points here. The foolishness of pride, not thy will, but my will be done. Number one, what does pride do? It seeks personal vengeance with really no concern for how it's going to affect other people. i got to get even. i got to get even. That's just not right. I shouldn't be treated that way. That's what our pride does. We're going to see that in King Saul tonight. Our pride also, when we're prideful, our actions lead others into sin. When you become prideful, not only are you sinning, but you lead others into sinful behavior as well. You know, let's be, let's be honest. We all struggle with pride, but it's one of the things, at least I know for me, that I hate more than anything when I see it in someone else. Amen? Isn't that true? When you see pride in someone else, you just go, man, dude, get over yourself. But you know what? We do it too, don't we? We get prideful. So it leads others into sin. The foolishness of pride also attempts to blame the consequences of our sin on the actions of others. The reason I've got this problem is because of you. Now, now, I know I sinned, and these are the consequences, but it's your fault. And we're going to see that tonight with King Saul. Last two points. The foolishness of pride seeks to establish his kingdom over the Lord's. You know, when we're prideful, we seek to build up our kingdom instead of building up God's kingdom. We seek to build up our riches and our wealth and our fame and our name when we're supposed to be building up his name and magnifying his name and bringing glory to his name. Amen? And storing up riches where they're going to outlast this life. And then lastly, the foolishness of pride takes the best for himself. And again, we're going to see all those tonight as we take a look at King Saul. So let's begin at verse 24. The foolishness of pride, not thy will, but my will be done. First of all, it seeks personal vengeance. 
with no concern for the potential cost to others. Look at verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath. Now here's the interesting part. If you'll remember, the previous verses ended, they had just won a mighty victory because of the faithfulness of one man, Jonathan. And Jonathan had gone out and been faithful, and God had brought the victory, and the earth had quaked, and the enemy was running, and now the children of Israel were chasing them, and even some who had gone over to the Philistine side, it says in the text last week, turned around and began to help Israel again, and they were chasing them away. This was a time of rejoicing and great victory. But then King Saul shows up. Then pride comes in. And instead of rejoicing and praising God and giving glory to God and praising God for the work that Jonathan had done, immediately King Saul wanted to let everybody know who was in charge. In case you guys forgot, God is not king anymore, I am. And my son Jonathan, he's just my son. I'm still the king, don't forget it. And in case you were about to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to place all of you under an oath. I'm going to bind you all to something, and we're going to see that this oath is truly foolish. And it is truly built on the desires of a man. God had just done a miraculous work through his faithful servant. God had routed and confused the enemy while Saul was sitting sulking under a pomegranate tree. But he wants everybody to forget that. And he wants to let them know how great he is. So God had brought the victory. This time of rejoicing quickly becomes a time of fear. So what was the oath? What was this oath that he gave them? Look what it says. Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. If you underline stuff, underline I and my. By the way, when there's a lot of I and my and I and I in your vocabulary, you know, it's, it is interesting that the middle letter in pride and sin is the same. What is it? It's I. Middle letter in pride, I. Middle letter in sin, I. And you know what? When we use that word a lot, it's because we're struggling both with sin and pride. So he tells them that none of them could eat anything until he had taken vengeance on his enemies. Now, God had just brought a great victory. God is the one who's routing them. God is the one who's got them running. And Jonathan's out there leading the way. And now all of a sudden, he turns and makes it all about him again. Until I get my vengeance. Now, Jonathan, it's interesting, viewed the Philistines as God's enemy. He saw them and said, oh, they're enemies of the Lord. Who are these Philistines that come against the true and living God? They're enemies of the Lord. But Saul saw them as his enemies. And they're my enemies. And I have to go. A self-centered man who desired to build his own reputation while Jonathan was a God-centered man who sought only to bring glory to the name of the Lord. Jonathan's faith and obedience had brought victory and glory to his name. And now Saul's fleshly self-centered attitude in the midst of God's blessing declares a curse. Remember, they're in rejoicing and he declares a curse on his own people. They're rejoicing, they're praising God, this is incredible. And then, by the way, everybody come on in here. Cursed are you if you eat anything before they're all dead. You're cursed. I'm the king, I'm going to carry it out too. Now, first of all, this is really stupid. Because when you're fighting in a battle, you think you might need to eat some food. You think that might be a helpful thing when you're fighting an enemy that outnumbers you? 
Now, on the surface, this can sound pretty spiritual. You know, let's set today aside as a special day of fasting unto the Lord. We want God to do a great work, so we should fast today. And I'm going to enforce this with the whole army by placing a curse on anybody who would make food more important than God. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, if that was the attitude with which it was spoken, that'd be fine, but that's not what happened. Because we saw his motivation wasn't, let's fast and give glory and honor to the Lord and trust in Him. It's let's fast until I get my vengeance on my enemies. You don't eat till I get what I want. Nice guy. Now remember, they asked for this king, and the Lord had already told them, if you get this king, it's not going to be good. And, they said, get, you know, and he told them all the things that would happen. Now it's starting to happen. They're like, oh, we should have listened. Now we all know we've been there, right? Word of God tells us something, and we think maybe we're just kind of special. And that part of the verse doesn't really apply to us, and so we just trek through it anyway. And then the consequences come, we go, oh, should have listened to God. It was Saul's focus and motivation for the fast that was wrong, not the fast in of itself. It was not to draw them closer to God, but to keep them from stopping and eating. Here's the point. He wanted to go get the enemy. Now, I find this interesting. I don't know how long earlier, could have been moments, hours at the most earlier, he was hiding under a pomegranate tree, afraid of this enemy, and now he's saying, we can't stop till they're all dead. So I don't even want you to stop to eat. So you just keep chasing them till they're all dead, and if you stop to eat, then you're going to be cursed. And the curse is going to be that you're going to be put to death. So, even in the midst of doing something like spiritual fasting, his focus was on himself, not the Lord. And here's the key, guys. A lot of times we can do things that seem outwardly religious, but our motivation is really not about God. It's about drawing attention to ourselves. And God knows when we're doing that. You know, he told them, he told them don't, you know, when you fast, don't put ashes on your head. You know, wash your face. Because you know what the Pharisees used to do? They would, you know, walk around in sackcloth and ashes and throw ashes on their head. And, oh, yeah, I'm fasting. Look how spiritual I am. Oh, I'm just suffering for God. And he says, don't do that. When you fast, wash your face. Don't tell anybody. The Bible says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't, you don't communicate with that. That's between you and the Lord. And keep it between you and the Lord. Amen? And so we see here that we can do really religious and really righteous things with the wrong motive. And guys, it's a waste of time because God knows the truth. If we do the right thing with the wrong motive, it's the wrong thing. So Saul's desire is not for the glory of God, but for the glory of Saul. And again, so too today, far more important than any religious action is the heart and motive behind it. Remember the woman who gave the widow with the widow's might? And she just came up and dropped, you know, the other guys are blowing trumpets and letting everybody know, and, you know, they, they changed, you know, and they had, a, literally, they put it into these big horns, and they would shake their money in there, and it would just make all this racket, and it would let everybody know how much they were giving. And up walked this widow with her might and dropped it in, and the Lord said she gave more than them all, because they gave out of their abundance, she gave out of her lack. God is not looking for the greatness of the gift. He's looking for the simplicity of a heart that is totally sold out for him. Lord, my whole life's yours. Everything I have is yours. The talents you give me are yours. Nothing else matters but you, Lord. I'm going to give it all to you. 
And so the Pharisees were extremely religious, but much of what they did was for the praise of men. And so too Saul, his fleshly and his oath and his curse. He had turned a time of rejoicing and, and great victory into a time of burden, all motivated by his desire for personal vengeance. So then it says there, so none of the people tasted food. Now, why did they not eat? Was it because they were fasting in a desire for greater intimacy with God? No, it's because they were afraid King Saul was going to kill them. So they didn't eat any food because they were afraid of a man, not because they were honoring unto God. And again, we see so much of the religious rituals we see going on today and so much of the cults and the other world religions where people are fulfilling these rituals, but so much of it is done either to earn the praise of God or to look righteous before man. And guys, we shouldn't, that should never be the case in anything we do for the Lord. He knows our heart. I think sometimes what He wants more than anything is you just to stop, turn everything off, and spend time with Him. I think that blesses Him more than anything. You know what? You're my dad. I love you. And I'm just going to hang out with you right now. He's blessed by that. So Saul, we see his motivation is out of personal vengeance to reestablish his authority. He thought this would make the enemy or the army move faster to catch up to the enemy. And it instead is going to zap their strength and keep them from completing their task. And it took the focus off the Lord and put it on Saul. Now, it's interesting. A curse is only as strong as the person who makes the curse. I've had people tell me that before. You know, I'm going to put a curse on you. I'm like, okay. And make five of them. I don't care. Here's the point. Our God is greater than anything the world can try to do to us. Amen? Amen. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And God has not given us a spirit of fear. And we don't, have to, we don't address the devil. That You know what? The Lord takes care of him. Let's just keep our eyes on Jesus and we don't have to worry about it. Amen? And I can't tell you how many times I've counseled people where they're concerned. I think someone's, I think I'm cursed because of, no, I need to be delivered. You've been delivered. Amen? If you're born again, you've been delivered. Amen? Been delivered. It's a done deal. It's already taken place. And so here's King Saul, and, he, and there's this, there's concern, and he's, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna, there's going to be a curse upon you. And again, the Lord does in the Bible, believe it or not, there's times where he pronounces curses. You know, it's interesting. It says in Joshua 6, we looked at this. Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. You get to 1 Kings 16, guess what happens 600 years later? Someone tries to rebuild Jericho. What do you think happened to him? Well, it says in the days of, of Hael, of Bethel, he built Jericho, and he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segeb, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which had been spoken through Joshua. When God says it, it's going to happen. Amen. But when the world says it, we need not worry about it, because only if God allows it will it happen. Amen? So we don't have to fear the curses of men. We need to be faithful to God. So look at verse 25 and 26. So now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was honey dripping, but not one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. They didn't fear the Lord, they feared the oath. Now what's interesting, there was honey on the ground. 
Now, the Bible tells us that Canaan was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? And that word dripping, it literally means, can also mean flowing. And some people say that actually there are places in these forests where the honey was flowing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like? Now, you're fighting in a battle, and you're out there, you know, hand-to-hand sword combat. You've been fighting all day long. You're weary. How, do you, how good do you think that honey must have looked? Give me some of that, right? Yet they were afraid to touch it because they were afraid of the oath. God, I believe right here very clearly, is providing for His army. Here's God's provision. Here you go. Here's my provision for you. Here you go. You're going along, being faithful to do what I've called you to do, to go out and defeat the Philistines as I have commanded you to do. And along the way, here comes provision for you. And you know what? That's exactly what happens in our lives, guys, is we will just be obedient and be faithful to what God has called us to do. He will provide. Amen? People say, well, God's not providing. Then I say, you're not obeying. Oh, ouch. But here's, isn't that true? Because when people say, well, God's just not providing. Well, either God's wrong or you're wrong, and I'm going with you. Amen? Because if we will obey, God will provide. He's faithful. And so the reason that we struggle is because we don't trust and honor the Lord. You know, we do have to, by the sweat of our brow, we do need to be diligent. The Bible commands that of us. But as we are obedient about, now again, I want to make this clear. He provides our needs, not our wants. Amen? Amen. Well, God's not providing. I've been praying for that, you know, Rolls Royce. I just don't have one. Hey, God's providing, but He's providing exactly as much as you need, not what you want. Amen? So the honey was dripping, and imagine the torture for these soldiers, and no one put their hand to their mouth, as tempting as it may have been. But why did they resist? Not out of devotion to God. Not because they were focusing on Him. They didn't walk by and go, well, we're focusing on the Lord, we're not going to touch that honey. They didn't touch it because they feared the oath. They feared the consequences. So the source of nourishment and strength for the battle was forsaken out of a fear of a man-made oath. So what's the application for us today? I find it interesting in Scripture that honey is compared to the Word of God. It says in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You know, God's word is the source of our strength in the midst of our battle. Amen? Amen. You know, we're in the battle, the source of our strength is the word of God. And we must not make the mistake that these soldiers made that out of fear of man, we would not reach out and take God's word and be nourished by it. Now, how does that apply to us today? Maybe you are in a work environment where they tell you you can't bring your Bible. Well, again... Pastor Dave's opinion, take your Bible anyway. Amen. You know, and I'm not saying be a jerk about it, but you know, let's be obedient to the Lord in the midst of it. Amen? I used to tell kids in the youth group, take your Bible to school anyway. If you get sent home, your parents will high-five you. They won't be mad. Amen? And you know what? We need God's Word in our places of work. Amen? We need prayer there. You know what? You can't stop. We don't stop being Christians when we get to work. At least I hope not. Amen? <laughs> We don't check our Christianity at the door. And here's the threat of man and the fear of man and the oath of man that we're afraid to openly reach out and take the honey and feed ourselves to strengthen us for the battle because we're afraid of what men might think. And that's what's happening here. And that's what can happen to us if we're more worried about what men think than what God says. Amen? That was really weak. I know you're napping or something. What's up? All right. May we not forsake... What God has called us to do because of our fear of men. 
Fear of not fitting in at work, fitting in at school. May we strengthen ourselves with God's source of nourishment for the battle we're in. Then it says in verse 27, But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people. So Jonathan was ignorant to his father's oath, and he saw God's provision right before his eyes, and he innocently reached out and nourished himself. Now look what happens when he does it. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, charged the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put it to his mouth, and his countenance was brightened. This guy was hungry. And God had provided for him, and he takes and he feeds himself, and his countenance was brightened. Isn't this what happens when you spend time in God's Word? You know, you can be starving and struggling and going through a battle and going through a difficult time, and you open up the Word of God and you get fed from it, and man, your countenance just changes, doesn't it? And the same thing was happening here. And this was a time of God's provision for the entire army to strengthen themselves to fulfill the battle. And instead, out of a fear of what a man might do to them, they didn't do it. They didn't reach out. And a king that they had asked for themselves. And when it says there that he was nursed, it, it counts was brightened. His hunger and his fatigue left him. Verse 28. The one of the people said... Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. His countenance was brightened, and the people were faint. He reached out and took what God had provided for him, and God ministered to him, and his countenance was brightened. And the people instead listened to the words of a man who was commanding something contrary to what God desired for them, and they were walking around faint and weary. Guys, we will not grow weary in well-doing if we are walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We get tired when we are doing it in our flesh. We grow faint when we're doing it based on our strength. But you know what? When we're walking with the Lord, it's limitless. It's a blessing. It's a get-to. It's not a have-to. How sad that a legalistic and foolish and prideful oath of a man kept God's people from being nourished by him. And that's exactly what this is. This is a a legalistic oath. This is adding to the Word of God. It's not in the Word. I'm going to add it to the Word, and I'm going to hold you accountable to it. And you know what? Now you're going to walk around and have it be a burden upon you. And that's exactly what legalism does, isn't it? People take the Word of God, add a bunch of rules to it, and now you walk around overwhelmed. You know, I think of nothing more when I think of legalism than the Sabbath in the Old Testament. God had created it to be a day of rest, and it became a day of great burden because everybody was afraid they're going to do something and break the Sabbath. You can't wash. Why? Because water might spill out and land on the floor, and that would be water. You can't take a bath. And you know what? You should, if you've got wooden teeth, you've got to take them out because if you have them in, you're carrying weight around. If you have a wooden leg, you've got to take it off because you'll be carrying weight. And you can't do this and you can't. And these were things that are nowhere in Scripture. But they added all these piles onto them. And so you had people, you know, hopping around on one leg with no teeth who were dirty and smelled bad. And it was supposed to be the day of rest, right? I mean, this is so sad how we can take what God wants to bless us with and turn it into a heavy burden. Guys, He came that we might have life and life more abundantly. He didn't come to give us a burden and walk around, oh, I can't do anything. I'm a Christian now. Oh. You know, Christianity is not a black robe with a wheelbarrow full of rules and heaven at the end. Amen? You know what it is? It's abundant life filled, you know, the joy of the Lord. 
And that's exactly, sadly, we see here the, the difference. Here, as the guy reached out, here's God's provision. He tasted of it. It's taste and see that it is good. His countenance has changed. And the other guys, oh, faint. Because they're overwhelmed by the legalistic oath of their king. Again, today many church leaders act just as foolishly as Saul as they do not feed their people a diet rich in the word of God, but starve them to death. Or they water down so much of God's word that there's very little spiritual nutritional value in the end. And then the result is Christians so spiritually weak that they're ineffective in the battle. Guys, the way we're going to be effective in the battle that's out there is to be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, filled up with the word of God. That's how God desires to use us. So the people were faint, but Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Now some people, some commentators I read, said that they thought that this was wrong for Jonathan to say this. I don't think so. I think that he should honor his dad until his dad starts dishonoring God. Then I think it's time for him to step up and just make sense. You know what my dad's bringing? My dad is troubling the land. The result is when those called to lead focus on personal vengeance, his foolish oath and fleshly pursuits have left his people weak and as we're going to see, open to temptation. When a guy's all about vengeance, he doesn't understand all the collateral damage going on around him, all the people he's hurting going on around him. He doesn't even care. I'm just going to get even, and I don't care who I hurt. I'm just going to make it happen. And this is where King Saul is right now. And again, why? Because he wants to magnify his name. Those Philistines came against me. I'm the king. They need to understand I'm the king, and I'm going to go out there and tear them up. But you know what? Without him, we can do nothing. And King Saul is going to find that out fairly soon. Look at verse 30. Let me finish the verse, though. My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. He's looking at these guys and they're all like, oh. And he looks at them and says, my dad has troubled the land. Look at me. I had some honey and look how I'm doing compared to you guys. Look, I've been in the word. And look at the joy that's in my life compared to those who are seeking answers somewhere else. Amen? We can be rejoice in the fact that we have God's word. Then it says in verse 30, How much better if the people... This is, again, continuing to hear Jonathan speaking. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now there would not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. You know what? What he's saying is, if we had all eaten, how much stronger would we be? How much faster would we catch up to them? And how much more of the enemy would we have wiped out if we had taken the honey that God had provided for us and we had fed on it? Guys, how much more of an impact can we have on the world if we're spending more time in God's Word, spend more time crying out to Him, more time in prayer, more time being, you know, crying out and being filled with His Holy Spirit to overflowing? How much more effective? How much greater tools can we be in the hand of our Master? as opposed to us trying to do it on our own, walking around faint and weary like this army here. Saul's pursuit of his will over God's had hurt not only his walk, but that of those he had been given to take care of as king. The foolish and prideful pursuits of our own will and fleshly desires will always hinder the work of God. When we stop being desperate, when we stop feeding on His Word, when we stop praying daily to be filled to overflowing with His Holy Spirit, we will hinder the work of God. 
We will keep it from being as effective as it could be. Jonathan is troubled and mourned that his father's foolish oath had hindered Israel's triumph over the Philistines. So the foolishness of pride, not thy will, but my will be done. Point number one, it seeks personal vengeance. Foolish pride seeks personal vengeance. Number two, his actions lead others into sin. Now look what happens. Verse 31. Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hyjalon. Now here's something interesting. This is 15 and a half miles. Now imagine fighting in a battle and chasing an army hundreds of times larger than yours, 15 and a half miles, fighting them all along the way. How weary do you think you might be? How worn out. It even says in the first century uh, historian Josephus that they killed tens of thousands of the Philistines along the way. So they went along a 15-mile trek and they killed tens of thousands of their enemy along the way. And we know it's going to happen. Look what it says at the end of that verse 31 there. So the people were very faint. In verse 28, they were faint. Now they're very faint. Before they were weary and hungry and worn out, now they're really hungry and really weary and really worn out. And sadly, because it was their fear of the oath that kept them from eating before, not the empowering of the Holy Spirit, that's only going to work for so long. You know, trying to please men will only hold for so long. It'll only last for so long. Doing things in our own strength will only work for so long. But we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. It can work forever. And it can be fruitful forever. So look what happens. Verse 32. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Were they hungry or what? Here's what they did. Literally. They grabbed the animals, slaughtered them, and ate them raw. That's what this really means in its context. Now, you got to remember that it was because of an oath of man that they didn't eat the honey. And now because they were following an oath of a man, they broke the law of God. Because back in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, they were told to never eat the food with its blood. So now, because they were trying to be a man-pleaser and listening to the legalistic oath of a man, they went out and broke the law of God. And this is what happens when we allow ourselves to get caught up in legalism and man-made rules and rituals. Instead of following the Word of God, we'll be overwhelmed to the point to where these will be so important and so significant that the Word of God, we will break it. We'll We'll walk in disobedience to it. It says in Deuteronomy, only be sure that you not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. So an oath can only go so far. You can't starve people forever. And look at the results. It becomes this feeding frenzy, and the people wouldn't wait till the blood was drained. They wouldn't wait to cook the food. And they began to feed in a way that was ungodly. You know what? Here's the thing. If we do not feed on the Word of God, that picture of that honey earlier, and we're not feeding on the Word of God, we will find ourselves starving for anything. The people who do not feed on the Word of God will be people that will be susceptible to, to bite into any raw or unclean thing that comes along. 
Because the Word of God satisfies and then we don't need that stuff. But if we don't have the Word of God, we're going to be hungry for something. That God-shaped vacuum, we've got to fill it up with something and we'll start feeding on the very things that will destroy us. And that's exactly what we see pictured here. This oath would only go so far for people to truly change and follow through. The conviction must become their own. It must be the love of Christ that compels them, not just trying to keep a bunch of man-made rules. Jesus said it plainly to the legalists of His day. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. All too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Jesus said that. You hold to the, the traditions of men over the Word of God. And we see that in the church today. We often think that legalistic rules keep people from sin, but the, actually the opposite is true. Legalistic rules lead people into sin because they either provoke them to rebellion or they lead them to legalistic pride. Amen. They either start walking around talking about all the things they do that you don't. Oh, you, oh, you have a TV? Really? Sinner. I thought you were spiritual. And we can get legalistic about that. Now, if you don't have a TV, God bless you. That's a good conviction to have. But we need to make sure we don't make... You know what legalism is? When we make an extra biblical conviction that we have, something that everyone else must live up to. Maybe you're a vegetarian. You think everybody should be a vegetarian. Hey, that's between you and the Lord. I just hold on to the verse that says, the weak man eats only vegetables. That's just what the Bible says. So I, I hold on to that one myself, okay? That's just me. I'm just kidding. I love you guys. You know that. It says in Colossians, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, all these ritualistic things you're trying to do. You know, you, you go out and you see these people stabbing themselves and piercing themselves and torturing themselves and walking on hot coals and doing all these things to somehow be more spiritual or be closer to God. And that doesn't do anything to make you closer to God. And so it's not torturing ourselves, it's falling in love with him. Verse 33, then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a stone to me this day. You know what? The reason they're eating the raw food is because of you, Saul. Right? If King Saul let them eat the honey when they should have. Now, I'm not making excuses for their sin. It was sin, and it was wrong, and they shouldn't have done it. But you know what? If he had let them eat what God had provided for them, they wouldn't be doing this right now. But you'll notice that King Saul doesn't see that he's done anything wrong. And this is so typical of someone who's walking in arrogance and pride. You lead other people into sin and then you mock them. Look at these guys. What are they thinking? Why are they eating with the blood? Well, Saul, if you'd let, us, if you'd let them eat with the honey that God provided for them, we wouldn't be having this problem. You have dealt treacherously. Saul blames the people for what was largely his own fault. He says, roll a stone. What he means is to make a proper place for slaughtering the animals. There's 34 and 35. Then Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar... To the Lord. This is the first altar that he built to the Lord. Now this looks like Saul is doing a good thing. The people were sinning. He helped them stop sinning. He had them take the meat and 
cook it the right way and do the right things with it. He built an altar unto the Lord that they might make sacrifice. He did all these things that seemed really, really godly. And from if the verse stopped there, you might say that he was. But guess what? His actions have been leading others into sin. And the way we have to recognize his heart is to see his motivation for doing what he's doing. We're going to see it in the next verse. But here's the thing, guys. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And we can look really religious on the outside, but God knows the truth. We can walk around with robes and wear big crosses around our neck. I had a guy I worked with years ago, and he had a cross. I'm not kidding. The cross was about that big and about that wide, and he wore it around his neck with his suit, and he would tell everybody he was a reverend. And at the same time, he was sleeping with five or six different women in the office while he was married. And I used to go, dude, put the cross away or start serving God, one or the other, amen? Because, oh, I'm just outwardly religious. He told me that the women love the cross. I said, oh, that's, that, bro, that is so black. You're using a cross to pick up women. I remember one time he called me in the middle of the night to be bailed out of jail. And I had to pray for like a half an hour to figure out if I should go get him or not. I was like, you know what? Maybe he should stay there for a while. You know, I, I didn't know what to do. I went and got him and witnessed But here's the point. That outward ritual didn't mean anything. Amen? It might, you might be able to fool people and wear religious attire to make people think that you're something special. But here's the truth. It's who we are on the inside that matters, and God knows exactly where we are with Him. And nothing else, no matter how many men you fool, Again, our religion means nothing without an inward transformation. It's what's in the heart that matters to God. So the foolishness of pride, not thy will but my will be done. Number one, seeks personal vengeance. Number two, his actions leads others into sin. And now, number three, he attempts to blame the consequences of his sin on the actions of others. Look at verse 33, 36, excuse me. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night. So why did he feed them? He wanted them to get good and full so they could then get back up and go down and kill some more Philistines. Now, God wanted to kill the Philistines, but right now he's thinking one thing, my vengeance. I want vengeance. Oh, you guys are hungry. I guess I, I should have let you eat. Well, let's go ahead and eat. And then as soon as we're done in the middle of the night, let's go down and get those guys and kill them till the morning. Because I need to get my vengeance. Not because of the Lord, but because of my vengeance. He's not saying let's draw near to God which is what he should be saying. Look what it says here. Because he didn't say it. Look who does. Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So they're like tracking with him. All right, fine. If you want to do that, let's go. Now look at this. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Amen. He was going to go yet again without hearing from the Lord. And the priest stood up and said, uh, why don't we seek God first before we go? Here's an idea. Let's pray. Here's an idea. Let's consult God. Hey, before we buy that house, before we move across country, before I get married to that person, before I make this financial decision, hey, here's an idea. Let's stop for a minute and seek the Lord. Amen? But yet we see here that he was going to go again because he had one motive in mind, his own personal vengeance. He was not doing this for God. He was doing it for Saul. 
He was not walking in intimate fellowship. Guys, let us draw near to God. Boy, underline that in your Bible. And we ought to be doing that every day with every decision that we make. Verse 37. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Now, how do you think that that made Saul feel? Saul is impatient. Let's go get those guys. Come on, hurry up and eat. And let's go get them while it's still night. While they're sleeping, let's go kill them. Oh, we got to inquire of the Lord? Okay. Then he goes to the Lord and the Lord says nothing. Doesn't say anything. Now, it's interesting, we're going to find that Saul is anxious by the lack of a response, and he's going to blame it on everybody else. You know why I believe God doesn't answer him? We know why. Because he had made the unlawful sacrifice before, and he had taken his hand off of him, and even though he was still ruling as king, he'd already told him, I'm going to raise up another king, David, who's got a heart after me. And you know what? He had broken fellowship with God. That's why God did not respond to him. Sometimes we're praying and we're not hearing from the Lord. Well, we're not going to hear from God when we've broken fellowship with God. Amen? Amen. So what we need to do first is get right with Him. Now, we don't cease to be His children. We're always going to be His sons and daughters, adopted into His family. But we can rebel and walk away from God. And before we start asking Him and seeking Him for things, we need to get right with Him. Lord, restore me unto Yourself. Help me to get my eyes back on You. So look what He says here. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and no one see what sin, what is, what's this sin was today. Here's what he's saying. God didn't answer, you guys must have sinned. God didn't answer, so it must be your fault. Couldn't be me. Couldn't be the fact that I went outside of God's will and I made an oath that he never told me to make, and then I made sacrifice when I wasn't supposed to, and I hid under the pomegranate tree when I wasn't supposed to, and I didn't take the sword in my hand, and I only stepped out in faith after Jonathan did, and then you know, I, I forced my people into you know, eating things raw and in their blood because I wouldn't let them feed on the honey God provided. Couldn't be me. Must be you guys. And so, when we walk in pride, we always look at others and point our finger at others for the consequences for our own sin. There was indeed sin in the camp, but the sin was Saul's. Again, God had been removed from him. His foolish and rash oath, his unlawful sacrifice. So how does he respond to this mess produced by the foolish oath? He accuses others and blames them. So verse 39, For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan Though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die, but not a man among my people answered him, among all the people answered him. So here's what happens. He said, one of you guys has sinned, and you know what, because you have, we're going to find out who it is, and I want to know who it is, and even if it's my son Jonathan, he's going to die. Now, did the people know that Jonathan had eaten the honey? What's the answer? Yes, they did. Did anybody tell? Nobody did. Because they knew God's hand was on Jonathan. And they knew that he was the man that God had used to go out and win the battle. And they realized that the oath of King Saul was foolish. So how does he respond to one rash oath that's caused him problems? He makes another one. In verse 39, he says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. Here's another rash. Now, did he see God on this again? He's whipped up in his own pride. He's making his own decisions. And he's, and, and, now, have we all done that or what? Have you ever opened your mouth and made a rash oath about something? You know what? I'm going to... There's no prayer time in there, right? We just... 
respond, flesh 101, and that's what's happening here. If it be my own son, I'm going to die. Another rash. That rash oath, I'll fix it with another one. Even more radical than the last one. Verse 40 to 42. Then he said to all of Israel, you be on one side, my son Jonathan and I will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. They cast lots. Now understand this. And we need to make something really very clear here. We don't cast lots today. Amen? Now we don't know exactly what this means. It could have been the Urim and the Thummim. They bring them out and it picks one side or the other. You got two sides. It has to be two choices. It could have been rolling dice for all we know. But they did something to allow God to give them an answer. And we're going to see that often when they cast lots, God has nothing to do with it. They cast lots to replace Judas. And they replaced him with a guy by the name of Matthias, and you never see him ever again in Scripture. I think he was never an apostle. Pastor Day's opinion, okay? You know who I believe the apostle to replace him was? Paul. I believe God was going to replace him in his own time, but they were, well, we're going to hurry up and then shake some sticks. <laughs> Matthias, you're the guy. You know what I mean? And we need to make sure we don't do that. You know, don't shake your magic. Should I marry her? <laughs> yes, you know, don't do that. You know, I've seen people do that. I've seen people do that. Like, we don't put fleeces out for God either. That was a lack of faith when Gideon did that. We don't put fleeces out. You know what we do? We listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we seek His Word, and we spend time in prayer, and we let the Lord lead us. Amen? We don't need a magic eight ball. We got the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so it says there that it fell, so they, they shake it, and there's all the people on this side, and Jonathan and Saul are on this side, and it fell to them. Oh, oh, now it's one of us. And then it says in verse 42, and Saul said, cast the lots between me and my son Jonathan. So Jonathan was taken. So the lot fell to Jonathan. Now, do you think this was to expose Jonathan's sin? Some people might, and I, and I can't necessarily say you're wrong. I would say absolutely not. I believe God allowed this to happen to expose the foolishness of Saul. Because look what happens. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Am I going to die now? And, I, and you know what? And the way it's written, he says, so now I must die. He's willing to die. It's interesting that Jonathan has done nothing wrong and he's willing to die. Saul is in complete rebellion against God and he wants to be in charge. Boy, you see the contrast in their characters. Ignorant of the oath, he had done nothing wrong. The tool God used to defeat the, the Philistines, this man Jonathan, was willing to lay down his life, though innocent. And Saul, the guilty party, continues to blame the consequences of his sinful actions on others. Look at verse 44. Saul answered, God do so to you and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Nice dad. You know, you reached out and touched that honey when you were starving to death that God provided for you. You know what the penalty for that is? Death. <laughs> nice dad. Now, I find a, a picture to me here. Because Saul's pride causes him to make another rash oath without seeking godly direction. And Saul was willing to kill his own son rather than humbly admit that he was wrong. He'd rather kill his son than admit he was wrong. You talk about pride to the nth degree. I'd better let my son die than say that that was a wrong oath that I made. 
Rather than be humble, he'd rather kill his son. He made an oath to keep his army from nourishment. He responded rightfully to eating, you know, eating these animals. He responded right when they did that. Yet now he orders the spilling of innocent blood. Saul would rather kill his son than repent. You know what's interesting? Saul would rather kill his son than repent. And our heavenly father allowed his son to be killed so that we could repent. What a great God we serve. And that's, they chose Saul over God. They chose Saul over God. God was their king. The one who would send his son to die in their place, and they chose a king who instead would kill his own son rather than admit that he's wrong. Praise God for the God that we serve. Almost done. Verse 45. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished his great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair in his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. You know what? There comes a point where the people are going to stop listening to the king. And right here, they're like, you know what? You told us not to eat. That's one thing. Now you're going to kill the very one that God used to bring victory against the Philistines because of your own rash oath. We're not going to stand for it. We're going to step up and tell you we're not going to do it. Jonathan's faith had brought victory. Saul's foolish oath had brought only hunger and heartache. And again... Sometimes we too are going to have the lot fall to us so that God might be glorified and reveal truth. The people rescued Jonathan. They would not heed Saul's foolishness beyond the point he had reached. Verse 46, Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now that's interesting. They were doing things Saul's way, and guess what? The Philistines got away. Right? If they had been seeking the Lord, I believe they would have wiped them all out. Now, do you think the Philistines might be any more of a problem in the future? The rest of the... They just keep being a problem. And they're going to keep being a problem because he was doing things according to his flesh instead of being obedient to the Lord and wiping them all out. Guys, when we hold on to things because we're doing things in a fleshly way, you can rest assured that we're going to fall into that sin again. It's only when we give it completely to the Lord and we rest completely in Him. So the foolishness of pride seeks personal vengeance. His actions lead others into sin and attempts to blame the consequences of a sin on others. Then lastly, last two points. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel. Whose sovereignty? Do you find that interesting? He didn't say he glorified the name of God over Israel. He established his sovereignty over Israel. And he fought against all the enemies on every side against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines, wherever he turned, he harassed them. So he did now have this newfound boldness, and he went out to the east, the south, the north, and the west. But notice as he's fighting, he's got one thing in mind, building his kingdom. You know, we can be really diligent and work really hard, but our motivation could be only to glorify ourselves. I'm working really hard to build my kingdom, to build up my name, to magnify my stuff so that I can look great in the eyes of the world. And this was Saul's motivation. Verse 49, 48. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites, delivered Israel from the hands of those who punished them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan and Jishri and Malkashua. And the names of the two daughters were the names of the firstborn Merab and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the name of their daughter was Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of the army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Remember Michael and Abner. We're going to see more of them later. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. 
So we see here that his family grows and he begins to prosper. And from outward appearance, it would seem that Saul was God's man. He was being blessed because of his faithfulness. But the truth is that God was destroying the enemies in spite of King Saul, not because of him, in spite of his rebellion. While many may seem to be building a great kingdom in the midst of great rebellion, it never lasts. Have you ever looked at people and you think, how in the world is it that, quote, God is blessing them? You ever heard that before? Why do they continue to be blessed when they're in such rebellion? Guys, it's not over yet. The, the tally hasn't been counted up yet. And, and you know what? There can be a time of temporary uh, plenty, plentiful or temporary blessing from the world's perspective. But earthly kingdoms come and go and only what we do for the Lord is going to last. Last point, the foolishness of pride takes the best for himself. Look what he does. Now there was a fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. Again, because he had not obeyed God and wiped them out, the rest of his life he's going to battle the Philistines. And then he says, And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11, he was told, the people were told, He will take your sons and appoint them to his own. So the Philistines, who he had attacked according to his own methods, remained a thorn in his side, and in the end, it's going to bring the end of him. And he goes around, and he continues to be self-centered and prideful and taking the best for himself. But when it's all over, we're getting, I'm going to give you a preview of what's going to happen. In the end, we know that King Saul is going to have the kingdom ripped from him completely. He's going to come to a place where he goes and consults a witch to get direction. And then, you know, you know, the Word of God doesn't tell you what you want. Go down to the psychic. Right? Now, by the way, if you didn't know that, psychics are from the devil. Is that true or not? Amen? Okay, now, the psychic themselves is not the devil. We need to pray for them. Amen? And they can be saved and the Lord loves them. Amen? And we need to reach out to them in love. Okay? But... That's all from the enemy. And so we see here, consulting a witch, you know what he eventually does? He eventually commits suicide. How's this working out for him, having, being prideful and arrogant and filled with himself? Not so good. Guys, it's when we die to self that we're blessed. When there's less of us and more of him, that's when God is glorified and we, we experience that rich and joyful life that God desires us to have. So in closing, the foolishness of pride. Not thy will, but my will be done. It seeks personal vengeance with no concern for the potential cost to others. His actions lead others into sin when we walk in pride. It attempts to blame the consequences of sin on the actions of others. It seeks to establish our kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. And it takes the best for itself. The primary focus is on me, not on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we learn from this example tonight. Lord, may we be... Like Jonathan, men who, and women who desire to lift up and magnify your name, to bring glory and honor to you. Lord, may we not be like Saul, men who, and women who desire to build a kingdom unto ourselves, to magnify our name. May we not respond to difficulty with rash oaths and impatience, but Father, may we wait upon you, bring everything before you, Lord, may we draw near unto you as the priest encouraged Saul to do in tonight's text to, to stop in the middle of a, a time of difficulty, in the time of making a major decision. Before we take a step, Lord, may we seek your face. May we know your heart. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, help all of us. We all struggle with our pride. Everybody in this room, we all do. 
And Lord, help us to be more humble and more broken before you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.